Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Leo Lewis, the FT's Asia business editor, standing in for Gideon Rackman while he's on holiday. This week, we'll be looking at the recent reinvigoration of political and economic ties between America and Japan against the backdrop of regional tensions and the assertiveness of China. My guest is Rahm Emanuel, the current US ambassador to Tokyo, who served as chief of staff under the presidency of Barack Obama. So, how important is the strategic relationship between the US and Japan? I meet the US ambassador at the official residence in central Tokyo, a 92-year-old building with a very great deal of history to it, and, rather temptingly in this heat, an enticing outdoor swimming pool. Many ambassadors have made this building their home over the years, but Ram appears to be doing everything he can to break the mould of typical incumbents of the job. We met in the library, which has been an early target of Ram's propensity to shake things up. When I first got here, I noticed that in all the books, not all, but a high percentage were travel books, kids' books. It was just stuff that had been like left at a motel on a highway. And it was really irritating. So we raised some resources and we've now got all the American classics, all the uh, great histories and biographies of great Americans, Benjamin Franklin, Muhammad Ali, others, and have really fixed up the library. And there's a whole Japan section. When all my predecessors were here for the Abe funeral, they mentioned that this was their favorite room. So we're going to rename it also as the ambassador's room. And Ram was outspoken about what he thinks the role of a U.S. ambassador to Japan should be. For one thing, he likes to travel on Japan's famously punctual public transport. Everybody talks about how I take the train. The fact that I'm not in the green car, but in uh, the other systems, they're shocked. When I, when I first got here, I would walk to the government meetings and they thought an American ambassador, what, what are you kidding? But you've got to get out of this black limousine, a sedan bubble. And it's a horrible image for America. And I do think as much as the U.S.-Japan relationship is changing, our public diplomacy has to change. And we have to engage the host country's public and win their hearts and minds And an ambassador, let alone the whole embassy. We play a role in that. Japan's growing importance to the U.S. is clear in the sheer number of government and business leaders who visited the country in the last 18 months since Ram's appointment as ambassador. So I began by asking him how the consensus on Japan in Washington has changed. Japan has a lore now that I, based on everything I heard, it's new. It took a lapse for 20 years and it's restarted in a dramatic way because of the actions Japan took, both on being a full throttle partner in the efforts of dealing with Russia's aggression on Ukraine, 
first country to put the LNG to Europe. The prime minister has been incredible spokesman about shrinking the distance, and he's done it with the president between the transatlantic and the Indo-Pacific into kind of single strategic sphere. And then Japan up in the defense budget to 2% and doing certain acquisitions of certain capabilities like Counter-Strike that has garnered it the type of affection in the United States House of Representatives and the Senate and in the government and an administration that gives it a unique bipartisan status that not many countries have in the United States. You've also mentioned it to me and to, to others in the past that there's been a, a lot of visits as well by very experienced, very big hitter people in finance yes. uh, who've been here. Would you say that they are also perhaps working off a kind of maybe outdated playbook on Japan and that you're seeing them very rapidly updating that? You know, I think there's a couple things that I would say, which is two of the largest employers here, foreign company employers here. One is Micron and one is IBM. IBM has, I think, 15,000 employees here. Micron has 4,800. Both have done major, major investments in their facilities. For the long haul, the type of capital expenditures they're doing, this is like you're making a, a decade-long investment. The other day, as I was, I think I was telling you this, but there was a 72-hour period. The CEO of BlackRock, the CEO of Blackstone, the CEO of Citadel, the CEO of Guggenheim, all within 72 hours. When I first got here, that would not have been possible. And I think the one of the reasons is you have a highly educated workforce in Japan, north of 50% have a college degree, highly motivated, incredible work ethic, world-class infrastructure in an urban setting, you know, like Tokyo or Osaka, and a nation based on the rules of law and geographically situated in the Indo-Pacific. They are everything that China is not. And they have a capital inflow. There, are, You and I are sitting down. I think we're on week 13 of straight rise. The market is up 30%. That is not happening in China. Everything that's not going on in China, the opposite is happening here in Japan. And Japan's beneficiary businesses are investing in the country. There's a capital inflow, not outflow. Unemployment is at historic low. Companies are saying they're short workers. So when you look at the kind of before and after, Japan is the anti-anti-China, meaning they're the beneficiaries. They've done the type of investments they need to do where people are realizing, well, we have to have an alternative here. And Japan's that perfect choice. One of the things that's been notable, I suppose, is that Japan has probably got over time an idea about how its U.S. ambassadors to Tokyo uh, are going to be. I suspect that they probably decided you've broken uh, that expectation. What I'm interested in is the extent to which you've been able to do that because you have a mandate, either the mandate on alliances or you have a personal sense that you can freelance here. What's, what's going on? I mean, I don't want to go over my resume, but the worst thing would have been for me and I don't think it would have been good for the United States, is to be inauthentic, to be something I'm not. I think I've uh, been, you know, been up front. I mean, as recent, you and I are sitting here, give you an example, Japan's dealing with this issue with the International uh, Atomic Energy Association where they did a report on Fukushima. China was attacking Japan. So I was up front about what China's four nuclear plants did. And I'm not going to let China try to use this as a wedge issue when... I think Japan's done an incredibly transparent process and China's anything but that. And I think they were surprised how vocal I was. Do you engage with Japanese politicians, business people and so on while you've been here? How far do they think in terms of 
foreign policy, of economic policy that you now have as being specific to an administration and therefore something that is either four or eight years and how much of it is consistent. It's always going to be there. The US is always going to be saying this. I can say everything I just said, but I'm flying, I'm below and the president and the administration is creating air cover. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've been in the White House when you had a war. It sucks up a tremendous amount of energy and intellectual time, etc. Given what I think the president has accomplished in the Indo-Pacific, our allies are, you know, whether it's you put it on the Japan-Korea trilateral piece, you look at Quad, you look at what we've done on AUKUS, you look at what we're doing on the economic and commercial relationships and statecraft there. It's not only incredible the work the president's got done, but if you don't believe me, just listen to the way China screams about containment. They see the value of our work and the value most specifically of the president. I'm a cog in that piece. The question is whether in your engagement with Japanese, whether there has been a perception that they're dealing with you, they're dealing with an administration for a short period of time, that some of those policies will necessarily switch after a period, but some of it must be consistent. I don't see that. I don't want to speak for the country of Japan, but based on my senses, working with all the different individuals in the prime minister's office, the diet, they're betting long on the United States. They have a great relationship between the prime minister and the president. And then that filters throughout the whole system. America is presenting in a single narrative. We are a permanent Pacific power and presence. China's narrative is this is our backyard. If you don't sign up today, there won't be a seat for you tomorrow. The consensus in China that we mentioned in, the, you know, in Washington, you imagine that it is now something that will exist for all your successors in this role for Washington generally, that that consensus is now a sort of fixed thing. As a student of American politics, I would say for the foreseeable future, I don't want to say fixed, but, you know, the bigger thing is I don't think China and the leadership of China realizes what they did. I can't tell you how many times I had a CEO when I was chief of staff or when I was congressman that had things stolen from them, things copied, clearly in violation of every international agreement or organization that China was part of, but then wouldn't file it because they were scared of market access, et cetera. They're just fed up with that. Companies are not going to do that anymore. And then the United States also basically said, we made you a stakeholder, a big stakeholder in the international system. You violated every one of the rules of that system. And you expect us to continue as if Nothing else has changed. And I just think that that's unbelievably lack of self-awareness by China. Take one example of this to illustrate the point. In 2012, President Xi was standing in the Rose Garden and said, we're never going to militarize the South China Sea. I don't think the wheels of his plane were up in the belly of the plane when that's exactly what they were doing in in the South China Sea, which is militarizing it. That's one line. Philippines takes you to the International Maritime Court. They rule against China. And China says, well, we're going to ignore it. We're not going to listen to it. Well, at some point, everybody's going to say, you know what? This is not on the level anymore. So I think the United States understands today. And then Xi's made a decision, given the vital strategic threat of Putin, to line himself with Putin and everything Putin's doing. And so at least as far as I can see, there is a bipartisan consensus that this is not the same China of 20 years ago. There was a clear change under Xi. And I think that change has left China extremely vulnerable. That change and his decision to pursue a set of foreign and economic and national security policies 
that basically run against America's self-interest and America's national security interests and Americans of all stripes basically said, not because we're in search of a Cold War. The fact is China's acting this way and we're going to take care of our self-interest. We'd be fools not to. Is it a Cold War? Is this now a Cold War? You're asking me that in the very day that our Secretary of Treasury in about 24 hours, Treasury Secretary rather, is landing there. And then the special envoy on climate change is coming up when her wheels are up in the plane and taking off. He's going to be landing. So I wouldn't call it a Cold War, but I would call it real politics. It's being upfront and not have any illusions. They have said upfront. We take them at their word. We're the rising power. You're a failing power. We're going to replace you. Well, we're not going to subsidize you replacing us. You'd be a fool to do that. And now they're living with the consequences. And here's what I would also say, and this is, you know, today, Xi has 21% of their youth unemployed. America has the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Under Xi's economic regime, for the first time in three decades, China has a net capital outflow. America, under President Biden, has a net capital inflow. Xi, under his uh, regime, somewhat built up, he's not responsible for this, massive housing overhang. There are some reports that they have 10 years worth of housing unoccupied. We in the United States need to build housing, and we're short for the next decade. I think Xi, whatever he's doing, keep doing it. That would be my recommendation because it's really working for us. His economic plan for China is crumbling the core premise of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's an irony for a guy who so believes in the party because the core premise is you give us power, we'll give you economic wealth and growth. Well, the wealth and growth is coming down. You got 20% of your young kids, your future unemployed. And that is creating a political problem of huge proportions. On that economic side of things, you think that it's yet appropriate to think of Japan and the U.S. as being in a bilaterally golden economic era, or is that still a work in progress? It seems that there are concerns when you talk to Japanese corporations that it'll be a while yet before you could probably say that. Trade is a piece of a larger economic statecraft. There's foreign direct investment. There's joint research projects, somehow reducing all economic interface between two countries down to one aspect. Now, trade is a big piece of that puzzle. And I would just say to you, we're going to have to start speaking of economic statecraft and economic policy from a wide lens rather than just a one-piece, one-trick pony. When you think about compared to where it was 30 years ago, much more symbiosis. But third is, it's a piece of a larger collaborative view. The U.S.-Japan relationship in all its dimensions is going from alliance protection to alliance projection. On the diplomatic front, the development front, the strategic front, the economic engagement front, it's going through a massive affirmative restructuring in a way of partnership rather than just protection. Uh, I mean, there's nothing the United States is going to do in this region where Japan is not integrally part of that strategy and an integral partner in the execution of that strategy. That said... We have differences, but not in the objective and the goal. But we are unbelievably strategically aligned. One example, we produced this year a national security document. Japan produced a national security document. They're incredibly complementary in mirror images of each other, seeing the world the same way, 
seeing the needs to do certain things the same way. So that creates a blueprint to operate off. Do you think, given what you know of Japanese politics for the last 20 or 30 years, do you think that you've also been fortunate in Kishida, in the prime minister that you've had while you've been here? Has he been a big part of that alignment of the yes. the relatives movement? Now, do I think leaders make a difference? 100%. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in public service. But they're reflecting something deeper in their publics that didn't exist. Well, I don't know about Japan 30 years ago, but I can tell you 30 years ago, that was not the environment. I do think that the president has a personal relationship with the prime minister. I think it's good that there's a kind of consistency. And that consistency, the fact that both countries are in each other's public, popular, the fact that you see the world, the threats, the opportunities, the challenges the same way, and you're both willing to, as leaders, expand political capital to help the other one achieve their goals. I think that this is a golden period for the United States and Japan's relationship. Future presidents are going to be appreciative of the work that the Biden administration has done. And America will be better off and more secure because of it. Where do you think the improvement of relations with South Korea and the thawing of that relationship, where do you think that will stand in Kishida's list of achievements? Is it, is it right at the top? Well, first of all, his tenure is not done. So the script's not ready yet. Sure. Okay. But as of this time, if we're taking a check, what Prime Minister Kishida has been able to do and President Yoon, both of them will have a big piece of their biography, a big piece of their record and a big piece of their legacy, this unique relationship that has clearly bedeviled both countries and other prime ministers and other presidents. They have taken it to a level. We have obviously a strategic interest in that as the United States, who has unique bilateral relationships with both countries. It has made the work of our three countries and our bilaterals unbelievably more cohesive and effective. It's just that simple. I always say this. I mean, if you're not sure it's really good, just listen to China's rhetoric. When Korea and Japan, and it was becoming apparent of the kind of cooperation in the relationship, and then what was happening also on the trilateral, that is when China's rhetoric about containment dialed up to about 10 on the dial of zero to 10, because that they saw as what it was. It was a strategic game changer, and the President Biden and the Prime Minister and President Yoon deserve a tremendous amount of credit. The other thing that's true of both South Korea and Japan, the NATO meetings and the participation of Japan and South Korea in that. I'm interested really in what it is that the US and NATO thinks that Japan will bring to this and what it wants Japan's level of engagement, type of engagement to look like. Not only is Prime Minister Kishida the first Japanese Prime Minister to attend a NATO meeting, which was in Madrid last year, he's the first one to go to back to back. That's also true for South Korea. That's also true for New Zealand. It's also true for Australia. I can't say if that's the first for them, but it's the first time you have what's called the Asia Pacific Four, showing back-to-back years at NATO meetings. To the president and prime minister, Kishida's credit, they have shrunk the distance between the transatlantic and the Indo-Pacific. That has made the alliance, not only the bilateral, but the multilateral, much stronger. It's also helped by the fact that both at least Russia, China, I would add North Korea, are known for their coercion, their aggression, and their repression. 
there's a similar quality and characteristics to Russia, China, and North Korea. And I think when you look at what NATO did, one of the successes was putting the G7 meeting in Hiroshima. Europe put their flag and their self-interest into the Indo-Pacific. So the president and the prime minister, through hard work over the last 18 months, I'm sure it goes farther than that, but the period of time which I've witnessed it, have done an incredible job in shrinking the distance so people understand now the Indo-Pacific and the North Atlantic is a single strategic sphere faced by a single type of characteristics of the threat. You've written about China's economic coercion. Do you think it begets coercion? In other words, is the response to a strong country being coercive that we have to be coercive back? He's using it, sorry, listeners, he's using a scolding <laughs> finger at this point. <laughs> the question is, which finger am I using? <laughs> and only you know who they are. No, so China's coercion has been, over the years, focused on countries. Japan was a target in 2010 with rare minerals. Korea in 2017 in boycotts. Australia also recently because of what they said about COVID and the origin, Lithuania, for God forbid, having a decision to do something on Taiwan. They have all had economic coercion forced on them for political points using economic tools. China is now switching from economic coercion against countries to economic coercion against companies. That's what they did to Micron. That's what they did to Bain. Not that they dropped the country, but they're very focused now on creating leverage using companies as part of their target. Now, I believe the best response to economic coercion, and there's a pattern here of success, America coming to Europe's need in energy was responding to coercion. We have succeeded in Europe is standing unified with the United States because we answered economic coercion. Assisting the targeted country is a response to coercion. Philippine fruit is going to be left on the dock in China as a coercive tool. Come to Philippines, economic assistance, greater investments, greater partnerships, greater economic development. Go help the targeted country and not just the United States, Japan, EU, Australia. We all come to your benefit. So to me, the answer to coercion is assistance, not coercion. I'm not against facing coercion with coercion, but I think the most effective response is assistance to the target, knowing that you're not going to stand alone. Our greatest asset is alliances, allies, and friends. Bring that to bear to the country that's becoming a victim of China's coercion or Russia. When you look at Australia being targeted, there's a lot of things that we did, others did in the sense of economic engagement, plusing up. Australia knows who their friends are. Is it any accident that AUKUS got announced almost two years into China's economic coercion? No, assistance is the answer to coercion, not coercion being the answer to coercion. And that was Ram Emanuel ending this edition of the Ragman Review. You can find FT articles relating to today's podcast in our show notes. And for a limited time this summer, we're making those articles free to read for all Ragman Review listeners. So click the links in our show notes to make the most of this summer offer and enjoy more of the FT's international journalism with no paywall. That's it for this week. Gideon will be back next week, so please keep listening. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.